Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's special episode is by Pierre Azot. Pierre is a PhD candidate in the Department of French and Italian at Princeton University. Having previously graduated from Sciences Po Paris in Politics and Public Affairs, and from La Sorbonne in literature, he works at the intersection between politics and literature, both inside and outside academia. He is broadly interested in the relationship between literature, cinema, and politics as it evolved from the start of the 20th century to the present, and more specifically, in their interaction when addressing, or giving birth to, extreme phenomena from the revolution, to climate change, to terrorism. Today's episode is a fascinating exploration of heroism and greatness in France, which includes André Malraux, Jean Moulin, General de Gaulle, Josephine Baker, and Mbappé, among others. Comme entra aux Invalides, avec son cortège d'exaltation dans le soleil d'Afrique, This, if anything, is probably the first thing French people will think of when they hear the name André Malraux. That's the emotional and lyrical high point of the funeral eulogy he delivered on December 19th, 1964, for the transfer of Jean Moulin's ashes to the Panthéon. Jean Moulin, as you may know, was the main leader of the French resistance during the Second World War. Arrested by the Gestapo, he was tortured by the infamous SS chief Klaus Barbie, also known as the Butcher of Lyon, but he never talked, and he died the death of a martyr. As to the Panthéon, you might think of it as a Republican temple. In fact, the building was originally meant to be a church, But the French Revolution, in a typical revolutionary move, appropriated it, replacing the cult of God and saints by that of this, I quote, great man, to whom, according to the inscription on its pediment, it is dedicated, I quote again, with gratefulness. In theory, there is therefore no highest honor than to be buried there, or, as we say in France, turning the noun into a verb to be panthéonisé. It means being recognized by the whole nation, not only as an example of moral excellence, but perhaps more importantly, as someone whose life and action were instrumental to the very existence or survival of France. And obviously this is true of Jean Moulin. With this in mind, it is hard not to get shivers down one's spine when hearing Malraux's Entre ici, Jean Moulin! Oh wait, is it just me? I showed the clip to my little brother, who's 17, without any prior comments, 
And his first reaction was, who the hell's that guy? And his second one, to mock Malraux's quavering voice, his old-fashioned nasal tone, and the grandiosity of it all. Is it simply because he missed most of the historical context? Is it simply a generational matter? Surely a bit of both, but this points also to a more fundamental problem with the Pantheon, to its failure, as the historian Moza Ozouf puts it, in a landmark article on the subject, published in the important collective book called Les Lieux de Mémoire. My point here, though, as a student of literature and not a historian, will be to examine this failure from the literary perspective of André Malraux, through his quavering voice, but also through his quaky life. For Malraux is part of this romantic tradition, going back in France to at least Chateaubriand and Victor Hugo in the 19th century, which does not make a distinction between literature and life, or between literature and politics. Born in 1901, dead in 1976, Malraux embraces the 20th century in the same way Victor Hugo did the 19th. And, like Hugo, Malraux, although principally a writer, became a politician later in his life. As the title of his definitive biography by Jean Lacouture indicates, his was very much une vie dans le siècle, a life in the century. And as the past century was very much a time of conflict and extremes, so was Malraux's work, and so was his life. As he once put it, le monde s'est mis un jour à ressembler à mes livres. One day, the world started to, to look like my books. So what is this failure of the Panthéon, according to Azouf? The Panthéon was meant to reunify the country after it was torn apart by the revolution, replacing God and the King by the Republic, the Patrie, motherland in English, and the people as cementing elements. In Ozov's words, it was meant to, I quote, invent a new collective memory. But in fact, the Panthéon itself has always been torn apart by the disputed legacy of the French Revolution. Thus, with each of the many regime changes of the 19th century, the Panthéon changed too. Bonaparte used it to honor his generals while also giving it back to the Catholic Church as part of his politics of appeasement with the Church, the Restoration turned it back into a full church, the Revolution of 1848 back into Republican temples, the Third Empire back into a church, and so on. And then, even though the advent of the Third Republic in 1871 finally stopped the pendulum on Republican temple, there remains the question of who gets to be Pantheonisé. Almost as a warning of how thorny this question was going to be, the first to be Pantheonisé, Mirabeau, glory of the revolution, was also the first to be expelled only three years after his entrance, when it was revealed that he had worked as a spy for the monarchy. Ever since, at least when under a democratic regime, the decision to Pantheonise someone has regularly prompted fiery debates. This was evidenced once again only two years ago with the Pantheonisation of Josephine Baker. Meant to be inclusive because of her gender, her race and her nationality, it nonetheless prompted accusations from some on the right that the government was giving in to identity politics, while some on the left complained that the choice of Josephine Baker was just a way to avoid the debate about colonization, which their favorite candidate, Gisèle Halimi, 
would have prompted. In other words, with each new attempt to pantheonize someone, it is as if the whole of France's history is being judged and reevaluated. Rather than an occasion for the whole patrie to come together, it is a means for various parties to fight each other. Rather than a celebration, it is a painful interrogation of what France means. Now, painful interrogation is what Malraux is all about, and that's the first reason why he is so relevant to understanding the Pantheon. According to him, interrogation is the essence of the novel. I quote, Even though each paragraph of a novel is an affirmation, a great novel is always a question. End of quote. And it is the essence of the novel, according to him, because, according to him, it is the essence of civilization. I quote him again, A civilization defines itself both by the questions it asks itself and by the questions it doesn't ask itself. And finally, it is the essence of civilization, according to him, because, according to him, it is the essence of mankind. I quote, Man was born on the day when, in front of a corpse, he whispered, why? End of quote. What does it mean to always interrogate? It means to refuse to accept things as they are, to never satisfy oneself with a given. Or, as Marrow puts it, to, I quote, find in accusation rather than justification the fundamental dignity of life. Obviously, this makes it very difficult to accept any kind of greatness, to celebrate a fixed idea of France, or to come together with anyone. And it's no surprise then that Malraux was first known as an anarchist and an adventurer when he rose to prominence in the 1920s. Notably, he was jailed in Cambodia for stealing statues and artworks from the Temple of Angkor. If he later became close to the Communist Party, a so-called compagnon de route or fellow traveler, it was not because he embraced the Communist credo, but rather because it was for him the main way to oppose the rise of fascism, a fight which also led him to join the International Brigade during the Spanish Civil War, which, by the way, is the subject of one of his most famous novels, L'Espoir, Man's Hope. And that's also why he joins the Resistance during the Second World War. But then, if Malraux is all about revolt and accusation, why did he stay with de Gaulle after the war was over? As de Gaulle founded the Fifth Republic in 1958 and became its first president, as he came to represent authority and the cult of France, how could Malraux, the former anarchist, accept to become his minister of culture? Why did he, the former anti-fascist activist, remain one of the most loyal supports of a man whom the youth of 1968 would accuse of being a fascist himself? The answer to these questions lies in the Pantheon. For if we manage to find the coherence of Malraux's trajectory, in spite of the apparent contradiction of his political trajectory, that would mean that the Pantheon can overcome its apparent failure. That would mean it is possible to find unity in division, in interrogation. To do so, to find this answer, I suggest we turn once again to my little brother. Not that he knows anything about Malraux, but he knows a lot about Kylian Mbappé, the soccer player. Where Josephine Baker failed, Kylian Mbappé succeeded. During the last Soccer World Cup, he became the symbol of the nation, a unified nation, and a kind of cult developed. 
just like with Zinedine Zidane in 1998, the last World Cup that France had won before that one. His influence, or even direct presence in people's lives, is precisely of the kind that the founder of the Pantheon hoped their great men buried there would achieve. Yet obviously the creators of the Pantheon would not have expected a soccer player to do this job. But Malraux, I want to suggest, may very well have. Rather than with the definition of friends, this has to do with the definition of greatness. In her article, Ozouf explains that the Pantheon's conception followed an ideological shift that took place in the 18th century. The great man replaced the hero as a model to follow. The hero was primarily a military figure. The great man is primarily a civilian one. The hero was a man of the sudden exploit. The greatness of the great man is a cumulative one, built over time. The hero was only a public figure. The great man is also great in his private life. His greatness is interwoven with every aspect of his life. Thus, the revolutionary Marat, who would also be Pantheonisé, in his list of the six types of great men worthy to enter the Pantheon, names only one warrior, while the, the other five types are, I quote, the philosopher who enlightens the nation, the legislator who gives it good laws, the judge who applies them with integrity, the orator who defends the oppressed, the merchant who brings prosperity, end of quote. So we can see the hero is, to sum up, more show, the great man, more substance. And all this led Voltaire, who also would be Pantheonisé in 1791, to believe that, I quote, the great man trumps the hero. But to this, I believe Malraux would retort, but in a time of extreme political polarization, the great man needs the hero. In line with the opposition sketched above, Malraux defines heroism as, I quote, simply the capacity common to all men to outdo oneself in particular circumstances and at a certain time, end of quote. So once again, we see the hero is for Malraux, the man of the momentary exploit, not of cumulative time. Uh, he's a man of performance and not the man of substance. So why is a hero necessary to him and to us? Roger Caillois, another important writer of the time who was a friend of Malraux, Roger Caillois has the answer for us. He writes, there comes a time, and probably he had Malraux in mind, there comes a time when the individual suffers from being stuck in a state of conflict. And then any solution seems desirable to him to escape this conflict, even if it is dangerous or violent. In other words, the more divided we are, the more polarized we are, and the more we need something or someone to unify us, to overcome this conflict. But, as we have seen with the pantheonization of Josephine Baker, precisely because of this polarization, the more we look for this someone or something to unify us, and the more difficult it becomes, because the intense scrutiny only reveals more divisions. And this is where the hero comes in. The hero breaks this paradoxical vicious cycle. Kaiwa writes, I quote, Stuck in conflict, the individual appoints the hero to replace him. The hero is the one who breaks rules, but, under the light of greatness, he seems unconditionally justified. 
Thus, the hero resolves the conflicts in which the individual is stuck. End of quote. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off. That again is frenchhistory50 at factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later. The hero can be unconditionally justified precisely because he has no substance of their own. The hero is entirely defined by their exploit, by the fact they are breaking the rules of normality. They don't require others to agree with them, simply to rally them. And everybody can do so. Everybody can rally the hero. To the extent they don't mean anything, they can mean anything to anyone. They are but the empty vessel of our aspirations and projections. They are great to the extent they are small. And that is true of the General de Gaulle. In the particular circumstances of the Second World War, he outdid himself, as Malraux puts it, not by putting forward a new political program that would change the conception of France, but simply by breaking the rule, as Kaiwa puts it. That is to say, by refusing to do what a general in the army of Pétain should do. And this is why Malraux joined him, not because they shared the same political view or the same conception of France. Malraux joins De Gaulle the hero, not De Gaulle the great man. The same is true of Mbappé during the World Cup. Obviously, France rallied not Mbappé the great man, but Mbappé the hero, someone who outdid himself on this special occasion of the World Cup in special circumstances, someone who broke the rule, in this case, the rule of normality. So Mbappé is to my little brother, was De Gaulle was to Malraux. Of course, I'm being a little playful and provocative here, but the parallel should not be even that surprising. Indeed, sports, and notably soccer, became a mass activity precisely at the start of the 20th century, and many were the writers of the time, including some close to Malraux, who saw in it a substitute for traditional warfare after the First World War, had turned war into something else entirely, into industrial war. Uh, and I refer to you here notably to Johan Wiesinga's book uh, called Homo Ludens. Now, all this might sound great when it comes to my little brother, but on a political level, this comes with a danger, from two sides. First, because the substance of heroism lies in its performance, it is easy to fake it. This is definitely the troubling side of Malraux in his quest for heroism. He was a compulsive liar. When he told stories, he liked to say, I quote, 
This is neither false nor true. This is lived, vécu. End of quote. Thus, many of the elements of the legend he carefully crafted about himself have now been debunked, notably thanks to the work of another biographer, Olivier Todd. For example, in the bibliography attached to the original edition of um, another important novel of his, uh, to which I will come back, La Condition Humaine, Man's Fate, Malraux claims to have been a commissary of the Kuomintang for Indochina in 1925, but in fact at that time he was in Saigon with no political contact and his knowledge of China was extremely limited. Similarly, after the war, he exaggerated his role during the resistance and I could give other examples. So did Malraux use his heroism to promote his writing or did he use his writing to promote his heroism? That's a question that is impossible to answer. This is where literature and politics merge. The second side of the danger is that if any individual can fill up the empty hero with his projections and aspirations, if anybody can fake his way into heroism, then so can a political party. In other words, heroism is easily instrumentalized. Some would say that's what Macron did with Mbappé, using his heroism to further his own political narrative. Some would say that's what de Gaulle did with himself, using his war status as a hero to grab power after the war was over. Maybe Malraux was wrong to stay with de Gaulle after the war, as he didn't realize that the hero had turned into a politician. Some would agree when it comes to Macron, disagree when it comes to de Gaulle or the reverse, and obviously the consequences of each instrumentalization uh, varies uh, depending on the political context. But what's important here is a logic at play. For when the two dangers come together, when you have at the same time a fake heroism and a political instrumentalization of heroism, well, that's one way to define fascism. Hitler and Mussolini in this reading were fake heroes who made a people tired of conflicts, believe in their heroism, but who had nothing else to offer them than this empty heroism. And this is why, by the way, fascism is self-destructive. But then, to finish, how can we distinguish between a good heroism and a bad heroism? Was de Gaulle a hero who saved France, or, as the youth of 1968 claimed, a fascist? Was Malraux a great writer, or was he a fake? There are two answers to this final set of questions. First, there is Malraux's answer, which is also de Gaulle's and also Macron's for Macron is definitely an inheritor of this tradition. It is, to put it shortly, the answer of French universalism. Why did de Gaulle launch the resistance rather than join Pétain? Because he believed that, and I quote him, while England has never been as great as when it stood simply for itself, France has only been great when it was considered to be so by the rest of the world. End of quote. Why did Macron choose to panthéoniser Josephine Baker? Because, and I quote from the speech he delivered at the Panthéon for her, born American, nobody was more French than her. End of quote. And, explaining these two quotes, why did Malraux side with communism against fascism in the 1930s, rather than the reverse? Because, and I quote him, 
communism is open to the universe, whereas fascism is closed. End of quote. Remember his definition of heroism, someone outdoes himself. Well, similarly, what differentiates the greatness of France from the fake heroism of fascism is that it constantly outdoes itself by welcoming unto its fold external foreign elements by standing for the whole universe. And that is the spirit of the French Revolution. This answer displeases both a lot of people on the right who would like to return to a more traditional idea of France, notably by putting an end to immigration, and a lot of people on the left who see in French universalism nothing but a covert form of racism and imperialism. For them, there is a second answer to be found in Malraux, the one they will find themselves in his 1933 novel La Condition Humaine, Man's Fate. This is a novel that earned him the Prix Goncourt and fame. It is set during the 1927 Shanghai insurrection, which saw the Kuomintang of Shanghai Czech violently put down the opposing Communist Party. It follows a set of characters from each side, uh, the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, exploring the interplay between their personal and political lives, with a view to understand rather than to take sides. Indeed, the novel is fundamentally apolitical, as is clear from its title, which is derived from a quote by the 17th century philosopher Pascal. Uh, and I quote Pascal, Imagine a number of men in chains, and all of them sentenced to death. Each day some are slaughtered, while the others see their own condition in theirs, and looking at each other with suffering and without hope, wait for their turn. That is the image of the human condition. End of quote. Yet, against this dreary backdrop, two things remain possible, according to Malraux. First, interrogation. In this novel, everybody questions everything all the time in an attempt to find meaning and hope um, in existence. And it is up to the reader to make up their mind as to who they should follow. The narrator does not guide them. And second, heroism, as we defined it, is still possible. Heroism, which, for the duration of a scene, transcends everything, transcends the meaninglessness, uh, the backdrop of meaninglessness of the novel. This moment of heroism, that's the moment when Katov, a member of the communist cell who was taken prisoner by the nationalists, sees that a horrible death awaits him, one after the other, prisoners are being thrown in the furnace of a train. So we are in Pascal's metaphor. But Katov has on him a pill of cyanide that will grant him a quick and easy death. He's about to swallow it when he looks at the man sitting next to him, someone he has never met and who doesn't even speak his language. The man is shaking with fear. So Katov, without a word, with just a touch of the hand, gives him his pill. And then he is taken to the furnace, Katov is. Where is this hand of Katov pointing towards? Communism, fascism, apolitism, we don't know. Again, it's up to us, the reader, to decide. But we know that if we want to go anywhere, we have to take that hand first. So I'd like to conclude with one of the most famous passages of the Condition Humaine. Malraux may very well have just copied it for the funeral elegy to Jean Moulin that we started with. 
It's a passage where Kyo, another communist, in fact the leader of the cell, reflects on his own death as he's about to swallow his own cyanide pill. I'll read it in French first before giving you the translation. Il aurait combattu pour ce qui, de son temps, aurait été chargé du sens le plus fort et du plus grand espoir. Il mourait parmi ceux avec qui il aurait voulu vivre. Il mourait, comme chacun de ces hommes couchés, pour avoir donné un sens à sa vie. Q valut une vie pour laquelle il n'eut pas accepté de mourir. Il est facile de mourir quand on ne meurt pas seul. Mort saturé de ce chevrotement fraternel, assemblé de vaincus où des multitudes reconnaîtraient leurs martyrs. Comment, déjà regardé par la mort, ne pas entendre ce murmure de sacrifice humain qui lui criait que le cœur des hommes est un refuge à mort qui vaut bien l'esprit. He had fought for what in his time was charged with the deepest meaning and the greatest hope. He was dying among those with whom he would have wanted to live. He was dying like each of these men because he had given a meaning to his life. What would have been the value of a life for which he would not have been willing to die? It is easy to die when one does not die alone. A death saturated with this brotherly quavering, an assembly of the vanquished, in which multitudes have recognized their martyrs. How, already facing death, could he fail to hear this murmur of human sacrifice crying to him that the heart of man is for the dead as good a refuge as a mind? So, again, we may disagree with the particular meaning that Kiyo gave to his life, that is to say with communism, yet, whatever we believe in, it is hard to avoid the question, what would have been the value of a life for which he would not have been willing to die? And it is hard not to answer it with a brotherly quavering in one's voice. So when it comes to the Pantheon, my argument, in contrast with Mona Ozuf's conclusion, can be summed up as follows. The Pantheon is dead, long live the Pantheon. Greatness may have deserted its walls, but it may still be found in a heroism that is well and alive, running in soccer fields. For my little brother, even if he doesn't know it, the spirit of Malraux lives on in Mbappé. Yet, I don't think that my little brother would be ready to die for the idea of France or of the world that Mbappé stands for. Mbappé is an empty hero. It's on us to fill him up collectively. That's not an easy task. And I think we are lucky to have Malraux and his quavering voice to help us with that task. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.